Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den under the stairs here at Dirt Towers in Adlington, Chorley, in the northwest of the green and pleasant land of England. On my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. This time it's obscured by VHS tapes that I found out in the attic as I've been catching up on some of my favourite television programmes from the past. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actress Caroline Monroe. I'll uh, just give it a tap. Ah yes, the eternal champion has appeared as... Nothing. For the first time it appears blank. I need to delve a little deeper. Ah yes, there's a little annex, I remember. A ridiculously tiny homemade shrine to the actor Judy Trott. When I was 16, I dreamed of going in the forest and meeting Maid Marian. We'd get married and never split up. We'd live together without a care in the world. <sighs> Regular listeners to the Grog Pod will know that we deal with games and nostalgia. This time the dial is very much turned towards nostalgia, for this time we're looking at the TV programme Robin of Sherwood. This is part of a series of grog pods about the cultural context that helped shape UK gaming in the 1980s. We talked before about the influence of White Dwarf, the fanzine culture, 2000 AD, and how they contributed to the uniquely British flavour of fantasy gaming. If you're of a particular age, living in the UK, you'll know that Robin of Sherwood had a significant effect on gaming. More significant than the appearance of Call of Cthulhu, more significant than any mechanical innovation that hit the scene in the mid-80s, for us and many others, it defined the look and feel of our role-playing. It tapped into our psychogeography, in ways that we'll go on to discuss. Consider this from Graham Kinnisberg, a long-time member of the Grog Squad, who is now an AD for Game of Thrones, no less. He's clear about the influence of Robin of Sherwood when he made the following comment, our Facebook group. This version of Robin Hood seems inextricably linked, in my memory, with the gaming of that era. We were playing Merp near constantly at the time, so there was lots of inspiration from the show. Whether it be the costuming of Michael Parade's Robin seems to be the very image of a ranger, Dunedain, Judy Trott's Marion, a willowy elf princess, and the show's approach to pagan mysticism and hints of dark magic seems straight out of the low-key school of fantasy RPGs. Very atmospheric enhanced even more by a wonderful score by Clanad. Add in some cool sidekicks, stroke PC types, twin sword-wielding Nazir being far and away the coolest, of course, and he had lots to engage the young mid-80s gamer. 
the one show that would delay me from stepping out of the door en route to the above-mentioned games of Merp. And who can forget the wonderful and dramatic end to season two? The show's still widely available for streaming and downloads and uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. So after listening to this episode, I hope that you'll seek it out. In Open Box, we're joined by Graeme Staplehurst, who for a brief period was a prolific game writer who made contributions to White Dwarf and a number of supplements for Middle-earth role-playing, including the Gates of Mordor, as well as creating Robin of Sherwood tie-in game books with his friend Paul Mason and an Iron Crown Robin Hood supplement. After the interview, Eddie and Blythe join me to talk about Seven Poor Nights from Acre. Episode 4 from Season 1. It's a new feature, Grogglebox, where we'll have a scene-by-scene discussion so you too can recreate that 80s experience by surrounding yourself with the oaky smell of patchouli oil. Wear an Italian army surplus jacket from Armani and Navy stores covered with band patches and embroidery that isn't quite finished. It says Marill on the back. We had great fun recording this section. Let us know what you think of it as we intend to do more in the future. I'll be back at the end to bring you up to date with the latest Grognard Files projects. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Potted history! What I did feel was that outlaws tend to be very young and very idealistic and so my vision, to use a rather highfalutin word about a commercial television series, was that they should be very young, very enthusiastic and, in a sense, revolutionary. Richard Carpenter Robin Hood is a mythic figure, part of the English psyche and in the same way that Western movies reflect American cultural concerns of the generation, Robin Hood is a figure that reoccurs in different eras as an index of the cultural zeitgeist. In ballads, poems, novels by Walter Scott and others, TV series and Hollywood movies, a common man facing down oppression. By the 80s, it seemed that he was destined to be a parody of a paternalistic utopia that had been abandoned by Reaganomics and Thatcherism. In The Time Bandits, for example, Robin appears as a well-meaning philanthropist. Uh, Have you seen the poor? Oh, I'm sure you'll like them. Of course, they haven't got two pennies to rub together, but that's because they're poor. By the 1990s, Robin was a corporate all-action hero, played by Kevin Costner, whose interpretation owes something to Robin of Sherwood that was first aired in the UK in the spring of 1984. There were three seasons in the series, with 25 episodes. This interpretation of Robin was gritty, authentic, featuring real-world historical elements and a pagan mysticism. Where did it come from? To understand what's unique about Robin of Robin of Sherwood, you have to go to its origins, and to understand its creator, Richard Carpenter. Richard Carpenter began his career as a jobbing actor, appearing in smaller parts on television, including Hancock's Half Hour, Dixon the Dot Green and Zed Cars. Driving one day, he stopped outside a farm to look at a map, and written on the gate of the farm was the name Cat Weasel. 
he started building a character around the name, an odd-looking, whiskered old man, a wizard from the past, who is brought into the present day and interprets in technological developments as a form of magic. He sold the concept to London Weekend Television. It became a children's television programme that many of us will recall because of its folky weirdness. He went on to write more for television, contributing episodes to other children's programmes of the era, such as Black Beauty, The Famous Five and a favourite of the armchair adventurers, the brilliantly eccentric Dr Snuggles. He also created the children's television programme The Ghosts of Motley Hall, where ghosts from different historical eras have adventures set in a crumbling mansion. Following the success of the series, he also created Dick Turpin and The Smuggler, really great adventure programmes. He had a long-held ambition to create a version of Robin Hood that was set in the real-world history and had more authenticity, where the outlaws were rebels in a dangerous environment. He was commissioned by Lord Grade to create the television series, but ATV were beset with financial problems following the flops of feature films that they'd financed, such as Raise the Titanic, which uh, Lord Grade famously suggested that it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. Also, Jim Henson had taken his lucrative Muppet show away from ATV. The project looked doomed until Goldcrest, a British production company who had been riding high following the success of Gandhi, agreed to produce the scripts with the joint finance from a British TV company, HTV, and a Californian cable channel, Showtime. The programme was recorded using film stock at Pinewood Studios and on location in Bristol and places in Northumberland, standing in for Sherwood Forest. Ian Sharp was brought in as the director in the first series, who had previously worked on The Professionals and Lewis Collins' SAS movie, Who Dares Wins?, directed the entire first series, which gives the continuity of style. And they went on the hunt for a young actor who would look good in tights. And Michael Prade was in a West End production of Pirates of Penzance. With his wiry frame and delicate features, he gave a mystical quality to the role, more of an elven ranger than an effect swashbuckler. His gentle face was perfect for the 80s, while the others were covered in dirt, his hair was always impeccable. His looks, if not his acting, caught the attention of the producers of Dynasty. He was replaced in the third season by Jason Connery, son of Sean. And while the stories are strong in the third season, Sherwood seemed a little duller without parade. It's really the first two seasons that are magical. The rest of the cast included Ray Winston, who channelled a West Ham football hooligan for Will Scarlet. Judy Trott had trained as a dancer at Royal Ballet, and Little John was played by Clive Mantle, who would go on to play Lord Great John Umber in Game of Thrones. Mark Ryan, as Nizia, had a non-speaking part for the first episode, 
but he was added as a permanent character. After the casting, the addition of a Saracen to the Merry Men, replacing a character named Edmund, only happened because Ian Sharp liked Mark Ryan. The creators of Kevin Costner's Prince of Thieves assumed that the Saracen Merry Man was part of the legend when they used Robin of Sherwood as a source. Just think, Morgan Freeman wouldn't have had a job if Mark Ryan hadn't been such good drinking company. The young cast was fantastic. They appear contemporary with regional accents. But it was Robert Addy, reprising his performance as Mordred in Excalibur as Guy's Gisborne, and Nicholas Grace as Robert de Renault, the Sheriff of Nottingham, who were the baddies we loved to hate. Gisborne, a Norman soldier who was single-minded in his hatred of the wolf's head Robin, and de Renault was a consummate politician who managed to manoeuvre his way into power. But he doesn't relish the work He's aspirational, yet holds both the serfs and the aristocrats that he works for with complete contempt. So, who was Robin of Robin of Sherwood? A modern primitive who dabbled with transgressive behaviour, but wasn't quite sure about it. Who put friends above family, who railed against the institutions of state and church. A Robin that struggled to articulate his idealism. A Robin that was ultimately ineffective. Yes, he was our Robin. A Generation X Robin. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, how our gaming of the past has informed how we play today. This time... I'm joined by Graeme Staplehurst, contributor to White Dwarf and whole supplements to the Iron Crown Enterprises Middle Earth role-playing and developer of Robin of Sherwood-inspired supplements and a game book tie-in. Hello, Graeme. Hello. The first thing that we, that we always start off with, Graeme, is just to ask our guests, how did you start in the hobby? Well, I started in the hobby um, through board games um, as a a very young person, while still at secondary school, I really enjoyed board games. And uh, even at the age of, I don't know, 11 or 12, um, I was busy inventing games. I remember that my father worked with very early computers and brought home stacks of coloured punch cards. And I was always interested in trying to find new things to do with these different coloured punch cards, big IBM punch cards. So what board games were you playing? Things like Wildlife, which is a a gorgeous, gorgeous game. There was a lovely Ravensburger game about travelling through Europe and pinning little flags into a map. And then it got on, and at secondary school, we got into diplomacy. I guess I discovered the gaming hobby, in the wider sense, through diplomacy. And I also remember playing diplomacy during history class. Part of our school was in a Norman archway next to an abbey. And uh, our history class was in the it was in the archway, and there were very wide pillars holding the roof up, and so you could uh, we 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 made a little diplomacy board out of cardboard and um, sticky back plastic, um, which you could which you could move little sticky plastic pieces around on, and it fitted nicely behind the pillar, and so the teacher didn't know what we were doing while we were. <laughs> busy playing diplomacy and so when did you first uh, encounter role-playing games 
fact, it was Dungeons and Dragons. The first one I owned was actually a photocopied set of Tunnels and Trolls rules, but it was actually the Dungeons and Dragons game that I guess a friend of mine must have got hold of some some sort of a copy of. I was living at the time in Belgium. My parents moved to Belgium back in 1975. I remember exercise books in Belgium tended to have squares on rather than just lines and they were ideal for drawing your dungeon maps on so exercise books didn't always get used for schoolwork and because we you know we we didn't know any better i guess we were always inventing extra stuff i mean i'm sure everybody did later in life i discovered some people who absolutely stuck by rule books and so on but i was never one of those people it's a creative pastime so i think everybody should be encouraged to be creative. Now, one of the things I first remember of you is um, in White Dwarf. Now, this you, you won't realise, but this uh, article had a profound effect on uh, our gaming uh, in Bolton. Um, and that was To Catch a Thief, which you did for Traveller. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Traveller was actually, I think, because it was a... I mean... A, we got into AD&D and, and then that's when, you know, I was a little bit older, a little bit, had some pocket money and so on, could, could actually buy rule books. But Traveller was the one that actually, I think, captured my imagination more. I used to read quite a lot of science fiction. So your Traveller games, because the, th the reason why um, it caught our imagination is because inevitably all of our um, Traveller games ended up as being uh, pirates thieves and general vagabonds. Your article actually inspired our uh, referee to uh, make it more tricky for us with uh, various trap things to prevent us from stealing stuff all the time. So, so yes. I, bl I blame you in some ways for that. For making your life more interesting. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it was quite a prescient uh, article as well because it had uh, retina scans and things like that, didn't it? Well, as I say, I think I would would say I only ever stole stuff, um, or was in, <laughs> at the very least was it only ever inspired by what I read elsewhere. It's, it's interesting. There's, I was alerted to a project by a post by David Brin about Isaac Asimov in 1984. Wrote some predictions about what it would be like 35 years hence, and now we are 35 years away from that someone is now or maybe there's little collaboration to to predict what it'll be like 35 years from now with any prediction some of it's right and some of it's wrong but uh, so yes I'm, I'm not surprised i managed to get some things right when did you make that uh, leap from uh, playing games to uh, making contributions to white dwarf well of course there, there's an intermediate step which is writing in uh, fanzines so i think the first fanzine i came across was um, the beholder I've wrote a fanzine of my own for a while, uh, more of a social thing, uh, necessarily even than a games one, but it was called The Wind's Twelve Quarters. Most people that produced a zine did it so they didn't have to buy other people's zines so they could trade with them. And uh, were you part of the community then? Did you attend conventions? Yes, yes. Through through fandom, I got to know people like Paul Mason and Ian Marsh and a whole variety of other people, Mark Gascoigne. And of course, you know, they went on to work at uh, Games Workshop, uh, Mark, for quite a few years. Uh, Ian as a sub-editor for a while at White Dwarf and so on. Uh, Paul Coburn as well, who then went off to 
TSR to edit Imagine. So yes, I got to know these people through informal conventions. But yeah, I like to write. And um, uh, you know, I didn't find it difficult, um, which was very fortunate at the time, but also very fortunate that the writing standards um, that were, were required were very low. So uh, <laughs> you could you could get away with with uh, almost anything as long as you were reasonably literate. And I guess I was reasonably well read at that time as well. And you mentioned uh, Merp, and that's probably the game that you're most closely associated with. Is that is yeah. that is that uh, true to say? So, so tell us about yes. how, you, how you became involved in that. Like many people of my generation, you know, Lord of the Rings was an absolute cornerstone of your reading and and actually of your your, your cultural reference points. One of the things that always informed me my view of AD&D was always quite a negative one you know I'd play it but as I say we'd often be trying to bend or break the system because the system particularly the magic was so mechanistic the sorts of literature that I've enjoyed people like Alan Garner they're much more worlds where magic is not mechanistic it's unpredictable it's not something that you meddle with lightly i suppose as gandalf would say and actually as i started to write even in traveler i often tried to think about you know alien science as a form of magic and so when middle earth role playing came to my attention i was very excited by that you know the chance to to role play in uh, a world that i knew pretty well loved you know, I'd read Lord of the Rings back to front several times, read all the appendices, read the Silmarillion. Probably wasn't much more at that time in terms of, you know, obviously there's a lot more being published since about the world. But yeah, it was something that I felt very happy to immerse myself in. It fitted with my worldview and my cultural touch points. We did have Merp, but we didn't play it an awful, mm. awful lot. Because it was finding a, a way into the world that was um, gameable. Mm. Um, I think we were always... Creating a story that worked and didn't destroy the story that was there anyway. Exactly. And obviously I'd written one or two things for White Dwarf, but I wrote for Iron Crown partly out of uh, a desire to show the Americans how it should be done. <laughs> and that sounds very arrogant, but obviously I had a very great sensitivity to the fact that Tolkien's a great British writer. I've enjoyed the Peter Jack Jackson films, but obviously they're not the films that Tolkien would have made or envisaged. And I wouldn't have wanted to go in that direction. I wanted to look upon The Lord of the Rings as a treasury with huge amounts of tiny hidden secrets and i wanted to use those little secrets as the seeds of adventures to acknowledge for example tolkien's background as a linguist and work on languages and to have language and writing and some of those sort you know those those aspects of his work I wanted to pick up on the subtle differences in race, not the gross differences. Um, I wanted to use the subtleties of 
light and shade within the work. Yes, you know, you have out and out heroes, but the heroes all have flaws and, you know, everybody has difficulties to overcome. And a lot of those are, you know, quite small things in a way. So, yeah, I wanted to use the fact that you could zoom in on a tiny detail in this enormous and hugely rich world. So that's that's what I did. And I wanted to, to pay tribute to, you know, um, Tolkien's historical knowledge, his cultural appreciation and so on. So when I wrote, I typically um, did quite a lot of research. I actually gave up my job for a year to um, largely write Merb work, um, which was very unprofitable. And so I had to go back to work after the year. But it was hugely, hugely satisfying as a, as a, as a thing to do. Because I think at this time, I think that's why it's so fascinating at this point in time uh, when you were writing, there was more potential in role-playing games to do something more. And I think think that richness of detail is part of that, isn't it? That desire to use it as a vehicle to tell story. You know, yes, that's right. We, you know, the, everybody used to refer to AD and D as hack and slay and Monty Hall and all of these other terms. And and to be honest, actually, if you if you didn't want to play it that way, you didn't have to play it that way. But you know, largely the people that played it seemed to go in that direction. One of the games I wished I'd always played and never got into was Empire of the Petal Throne. I played a little bit of RuneQuest. I never played a lot of RuneQuest and would have liked to explore Glorontha a lot more as well. So certainly there, it was of the period where there was significant expansion into, as you say, much more storytelling worlds. But you see, I think even for something like Traveller, I would have, you know, I appreciated it, its ability to to not dictate what you did you know it was very much here's a setting here's some very simple you know frameworks for how things can be resolved when there's a conflict and really that's all you need for a role-playing game of course with merp the combat was brutal and uh, criticals were nasty mechanics force people down a story route because you're going to avoid combat at whatever cost yeah, on the whole, I think you're right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it came obviously the system came from Rollmaster, and I never played Rollmaster. Um, and in fact, at that time when I was writing, I was tending to use Hero Quest a lot. There were one or two occasions I can't remember which ones now, but some supplements I sent to Ice. I, the laborious bit of working out stats in almost bored me to tears and you know I'm, I'm sure at times I said can someone else do this please because yeah I just cannot be bothered this episode is all about Robin of Sherwood and appreciation yeah. of that and that's why I wanted to reach out to you because you got involved in some game supplements and a gaming book about yeah. the series I just wanted to um, talk to you about the series and you know what, how did you encounter it and uh, what were your initial thoughts of it well I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of fantasy on TV or in entertainment at that time. So it was going absolutely going to catch your attention. I think, again, gamers, I don't know about all of them, often have an interest in history, historical recreation. I have a son now who um, 
role plays uh, as one of his activities, board games as well. But he also uh, is a member of a Normanis society of recreationists and uh, wears chainmail and has a bloody great sword. <laughs> I think it's it goes back to that fascination with with history. And so certainly I had that. And yeah, something that was historical that also had some magic in it. I think that was obviously the the huge innovation uh, um, for the ITV series was putting magic into it, um, and in so you know reasonably subtle ways. Um, uh, it wasn't uh, you know it, I guess it was more mysticism than magic. Yeah, it was a, it was a good set of ingredients, a story people thought they knew but was able to be retold the addition of a new ingredient that seemed contemporary uh, and obviously things like the cast and the music that they they really all came together and I think again you know um, like Doctor Who and so on the uh, Robin of Sher- Sher- Sherwood's series did bridge that sort of children young adult and grown-up divide you know it could appeal to all of those different people tales of good versus evil and and so on i think uh, richard carpenter's uh, ambition as well wasn't it was to portray to recast some of the popular mythology or the or robin hood in popular culture and give it more of a historical authenticity as, from uh, the hollywood you know uh, tights and uh, feathered hats yes more like rebels and uh, yeah. guerrillas, yeah, guerrilla warfare, yep. yeah. And actually this idea of the folk hero, again, one of m- probably the people I read most, actually, but partly because he, he wrote more than anybody else, was Michael Moorcock. I suspect that Carpenter, you know, just had a little bit of the eternal chan champion in his Robin of Sherwood. Yes, yeah, but... It- yeah, I think you're right that Carpenter was tapping into that, that myth and the idea of the rebel as uh, role plays, it's appealing to see a party of characters as well. You know, yes, the, the... absolutely, that's right. I mean, yeah, it could almost be an archetypal um, dungeon group, couldn't it? Uh, you know, d- a very original D&D group. Here's a cleric, here's the, here's, the, you know, here's the thief, here's the fighter. Didn't really have a mage, but, you know. Um, here's the half troll, <laughs> Little John, um, or whatever it was that you needed to have. How did the game book come about? So the uh, King's Demon. Uh, well, there's a pair. Yeah, there's a pair of them, and my name appears on one. Paul's appears on the other, but actually we both wrote both of them. Ah, really? Um, yes. So um, yeah, they're both collaborations. But since Car- Carpenter's name had to appear on them as well, the uh, publishers said, "Well, we can't have three names." We divvied it up in that way. Um, so that was all down to the lovely Mark Gascoigne, who was writing already um, for uh, Puffin at the time and introduced us. Yeah, got us the gig. Paul and I were sharing a flat in Putney. Originally, Mark was going to do one as well, actually. So there were going to be three originally, but uh, Puffin decided that maybe the wave of enthusiasm over 
Robin was subsiding. There wasn't a fourth season, and so the third one didn't happen in the end. So the the uh, the rules are a little more complicated than fighting fantasy. So you, you devised uh, rules for it, didn't you? We did. Yes, fighting fan- fantasy books weren't bad, but actually I was never into them particularly. <laughs> so having written something similar is is quite odd in a way. At the time. As I said, I'd quit my job, uh, or was planning to quit my job, actually. Um, And this was one of the things, getting a contract for this was part of the way I could feel reasonably secure, because I could put, you know, a month's work into it and be sure I'd get something back at the end of it. Yeah, we wanted to have a way to reflect more of of the atmosphere, if you like. And so I think probably the combat was the most significant difference having a little you know figure and marking wounds on it and things but um well i i I have a copy the thing that strikes me about it is the brilliant illustrations in it from uh, russ nicholson oh yes yes we were so fortunate and and actually russ not only is a great artist he's he's a great artist for that sort of book because obviously he can take you know, instruction and inspiration and so on. So we were very careful in what we asked him to draw and, and what it needed to show and not show and all the rest of it. Were, were there restrictions on uh, uh, on what you could and couldn't do with the uh, characters? Uh, no. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, no. That that was uh, that was a very light light touch. I think, although Carpenter's name appears on it, I doubt he ever looked at it before <laughs> it was published. Yeah, no, uh, again, these things are great fun to write. Getting a couple of giant sheets of paper and drawing an enormous flowchart and then working out how many boxes you've got you need to fill in because you have to have a set amount of paragraphs and all the rest of it. Somehow, yeah, just then renumbering everything at the end is the the tedious part, of course. uh... The more substantial uh, Robin Hood um, supplement is the the role-playing campaign was was that ever planned to be a, a tie-in? We'd done a bit of research um, for the Sherwood game books, but I'd also run a campaign myself, which was a, a MERP campaign, very similar, at least to, to start off with, to, to Robin Hood. So it was very much the same sort of principle, the setting, the setup of it. I went to Iron Crown and said, do you think you can get the licence? And I don't know whether whether they really tried or not, but obviously the answer came back, well, no, it'd be far too expensive, we can't do that. And it's, why would we need to? Let's just do it as, Rob, as Robin Hood, it's a great idea. That they knew of Robin of Sherwood. I don't think it was massive in the States. It did get over there, and that's what got Michael Prade his gig uh, on Dy- Dynasty, but... Um, yeah, you know, it was sort of like, yeah, but this is a great archetypal thing. And to give them credit, Iron Crown did think, you know, this is something that we could do more more of, more uh, folktale type of settings, you know, from, from many sorts of you know, cultures or whatever. But there's not many people as famous as Robin Hood, so it's a good place to start. I mean, I even then, I knew that there would have to be more than just Robin Hood in it, which is why, you know, I developed three different campaigns 
and did a huge amount of research for that book and it was so rewarding yeah i mean it, it, you can feel the research i mean it's uh, it, it is packed with enticing detail and if uh, people get hold of it you know that you'll see um village plans and uh, castle plans adventures at, at the back do very much have the flavor of the series don't they yeah i mean there were i absolutely wanted to try to capture that and you know having systems that you know had some magic in them some more than others and so on but obviously you know that nice low level magic in merp you know suited the setting perfectly and of course you know you didn't have to to use those elements if you didn't want to um and that was one of the things with with robin sherwood almost you know and 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 hearn was he really affecting things or was he just a, a guy in a stag's cloak who who was just you know sort of twisting your mind a bit so and in here you you use uh, the green man hearn substitute yes, yes. yeah well, exactly. I mean, I I love English folklore and folk tales, um, and I wanted to to put in as many different little bits and pieces as I could. Yeah. I mean, the one of the more interesting ones was the whole thing about um, the, what I think of as the Welsh campaign. You know, having the spear of Longinius in there. You know, so so a Christian relic. But it's great. There are so many. You know, different. Um, bits of history that we've got and and folk tales and everything from like you know putting the origins of football into the game books um uh, there were lots of um lots of things that we tried to find out about hoods and and different way you know so there is a haxi hood game you know and that gave us inspiration because we were researching folk tales and i came up with it well look, there's a hood game so we've got to get this in somehow and yeah, so lots of good fun things. Tell me, Graham, are you are you still involved in uh, the hobby? Do you still do you still play? I don't play any role playing game. Um, I've got two sons, and they both do. I play board games, and I do a little bit of board game inventing. And uh, yeah, I wrote for well, obviously I was writing ad hoc for a while. I had a whole year, nineteen eighty six, approximately, when I was was writing. And even when I went back to work, I said, um, I'll come back to, to work for 11 months of the year and give me a month off and I'll carry on writing. And that worked for one year. And then the next year, my uh, employer, unfortunately, said, I can't really do this anymore. You need to either be here or not be here. So um, uh, it was a bit of a shame. But uh, really, after that, um, the writing went away. The uh, old Amstrad PC you rather got packed up and uh, and and hasn't ever come out again <laughs> but, but you're still uh, inventing games still trying to find use for those uh, IBM punch cards <laughs> and I yeah I, I I find yeah games that you can play in an hour um, I can get my satisfaction and my kick out of having said that I will go away and I do Go, go away once or twice a year to games conventions still and play board games for three or four days in a row so um, maybe I should get back into role playing games I have a, a good friend who, who is also a board game designer and she um, uh, I know enjoys uh, free form live action type games um, which I think I would you know I probably ought to give it a go some sometime but uh, yeah, there's uh, 
it, it's as you get a bit older i did always say to myself yeah i've got to go and have a proper career and maybe when i retire and back in the day we all thought we were going to retire at 50 which obviously hasn't happened but, <laughs> you know i did keep saying to myself when i retire i'll um uh i'll i'll go back to writing um and unfortunately i've got about another seven years before i can sensibly think about retiring at the moment so i sort of stay in touch there is a, a magazine other hands i don't know if you're aware of it no i don't know that thomas one. uh thomas morwinski i think his name is a couple of other people so it's it's sort of online and they publish material and they've been in touch a few times to well actually ask me if uh, I would mind having some of my stuff republished, so um, I gave them permission to use a white dwarf scenario and so on. And the other very interesting thing that nearly happened is that um, Robin of Shows Sherwood uh, uh, has come back as a um, an audio play. So they actually got quite a few people from the original cast back together, including, I'm pretty sure it was with Jason Connery as well, um, and and recorded whether it was one or more episodes, and they were trying to crowdfund doing some more, and they did approach Paul and I to see if we could either a, adapt into a script or write a script for them. Um, but um, that seems to have died a death. I think the crowdfunding probably didn't quite go as far as they needed it to. So that was uh, that was only last year. Um, nothing's forgotten. It seems nothing's ever forgotten to quote a, a line from the, the show. Well, when we're planning on uh, setting up a retirement home called uh, Dungrogging, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, when you're ready, there's a place for you, Graham. Thank you very much for spending the time with us. That's a pleasure. Grogglebox! Welcome to Ed's Shed. We just watched Robin of Sherwood together, an episode selected by the Grog Squad, uh, Seven Poor Nights from Acker. The, um, which was uh, first transmitted on the 12th of May, 1984. So, uh, hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Hello, Ed. Hello, Dirk. So, this is the first time in 35 years that we've watched something together like this, isn't it? Like, we've watched Robin and Sherwood together. That's right. And I remember this time in 1984, we were just leaving, about to leave school. We should have been uh, revising for our exams at this time, yeah. shouldn't we? Well, we didn't, did we? No. no. <laughs> no. So, that's why we've ended up with <laughs> any, any younger listeners, that is the thing to do. Don't revise for them. Despite yeah. what everyone tells you. Yeah, what's Robin Well, we turned out all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, about to leave school, we should have been studying. But at that time, you used to come early, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, Idea. We used to go to um, Blythe's house and we used to watch it together before gaming because then right. uh, Herbs, Winnie and Swab would turn up <laughs> yeah. and uh, we'd have a game. And about that time we were going to Griffin Mountain, weren't we? Mm. Herbert was running it, weren't it? Yeah. It was yeah, a bit like right. a starter before the main course, wasn't it? Yeah. Robin Sherwood would put you in the mood, mood. That's right, mood yeah. for it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was perfect setting, weren't it? Yeah. Yeah. Just let me ask, is it Acker or Acre? I was going to say that. I thought I it was Acre. Acre. It's Acre. Are you, Acre. Are you sure? No. It is. Because it's based, it's a, it's a, 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 a town in uh, in the Middle East. Is it? Acre, yeah. It's oh, spelled right. Acre, oh, but right. it's Acre. 
It is. There you go. And I've learned you, something. But we can't say that now. Can we got to start saying acre all the way through? This? <laughs> you can call it if you want to call it acre. I mean, is it Nathletek or Nathalie? <laughs> and is it Pavis or Pavis? Can we clarify? Forget, forget Robin Shield. Forget it. Let's talk about how you pronounce things. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it's acre. And apparently, uh, there's um, there's uh, an Assassin's Creed game that's actually set in the oh, right. contemporary, killing the um, against the Templars. Yeah, they're, they're interesting because they're kind of vi- quite villainous, aren't they? You know, yeah. they're not portrayed as nice people at all yeah. in, in this episode. I don't think they were anyway, but no, it's quite interesting because there's, there's things, there are films and stuff where they're not portrayed in a, in a bad no. way, but in this they definitely are, aren't they? Yeah, well we'll go, we'll go through scene by scene and talk people through it, but this is known as the one with the Knights Templar in. Yeah. 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 It stands out, doesn't it? Yeah. And at that time, the uh, the Knights Templar were very popular, weren't they? Yes. There was, yeah, well, there I mean, was I don't, I don't think, the don't think people were trying to join them. It had long <laughs> since gone, but I'd say you Well, they were, they were somewhat buzzing around the role-playing scene, weren't they, with the Knights Templar? Mm. I don't know what... They, they were like well, like think, ninjas in the White Dwarf at that time. Yeah. <laughs> like, you'd come across them, couldn't you, the Knights yeah. Templar? I don't know what they were in. It was. It's like a, they were like fads, weren't they? Like you say, like the Far East and Templars uh, came in because of um, the Holy Blood and Holy Grail and all the associations yeah. with yeah. Um, conspiracy theories. Yeah, because that was published in about eighty two, wasn't it? Early eighties, so. wasn't it? And yeah, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. But it was still buzzing around, I think, and you know connections with the Masons Freedom. and yeah, uh, yeah. That's right. secret societies that yeah yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's go through this. Okay, so it starts. The episode begins. There's always like a pre-credit sequence, isn't yeah. There? Mm-hmm. Some are better than others. Yeah. This one's got um, um, Seawood, yeah, the one-eyed peddler, running away. Yeah. Through the through the thing, and he comes across the Knights Templar appearing, and there's always somebody coming from outside into Sherwood Forest. Yeah, that's a common theme, isn't it? You've yeah. got the Sheriff of Nottingham and Gisborne, who are the the main baddies, but they're not they're not actually the worst baddies. It tend to tends to work that some rather more villainous character comes from outside. Yeah, either a sorcerer or a witch or a whoever, and in this case, it's the Templars, isn't it? But yeah, the, the, that is the structure of a lot of the episodes is like that. Because they always have to defeat somebody, don't they? Yeah. They can't defeat the sheriff. Yeah. And, and often the, the, the outside, the outsider villains are a problem for the sheriff as well. Mm. Yeah. That's that's a common theme in, in Robin Sherwood. And and um, it, when they when they meet later on in the uh, episode, you you get that sense, don't you, that um, he just sees them as expedient of uh, getting rid of uh, Robin and Sherwood. But we'll, yeah. we'll get we'll, yeah. We'll, yeah, yeah. we're getting ahead of ourselves. So at this point, they see them. Uh, them praying together, don't they? And you get mm, they're speaking the in French at and night. At night, for some yeah. reason, <laughs> yeah. it's at night time. <laughs> With mist, usually. Yeah, <laughs> it just looks spooky. It's spooky. We're yeah. going to do some praying. Like, oh, they look spooky. Highly religious spooky. Christian night. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it focuses in on the pendant, the gold pendant, mm. showing the uh, Knights Templar riding a horse together. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to the title sequence. Yeah. You don't have to do it, but it's a great soundtrack. <laughs> One of the best. It is. 
Okay, and it starts off, and, and then you meet, we meet the, uh, the the merry men, mm. and we know there's a problem because there's a new one, don't we? So when he getting... dies soon, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, there's, there's two, isn't there? Yeah, Is it J- James and Martin. Martin. Dickon, yeah. Was it Dickon and Martin? Yeah. James, no, James, I think, I think, Martin. I think James Martin replacing Dickon. James Martin, early. James Martin, not James Martin, <laughs> not the celebrity chef, James and Martin. James and Martin, yeah. they were replacing Dickon, who died. Oh right, because he yeah. died in the first one. Yeah, yeah. Right. What number is this one? Is it the third? Fourth? The fourth, I think. Fourth this one. Right. Right. It's quite early on, isn't it? This? Yeah. So they're still knocking around soon, you know, with NPCs stamped on their head, <laughs> more <right>. or less, <laughs> with no lines, because you have to pay more, I think, with equity <laughs> rules then, and uh, soon to die. Yeah, and they're, so they're practicing archery. Yeah. And the way that this scene works is all the time you're hoping as they're swinging that sack. And firing yeah. an arrow, yeah. and much the Miller's son, he's we'll swinging it. You're hoping that he's going to get it. Right? Mo- yeah, someone rolls a 96. Yeah. Hit near his friend. Oh, no. Hit near his halfway. <laughs> much. But it's, much. Ri- it's ridiculous that scene because you don't shoot arrows into the forest like that because you never find them again. <laughs> you're forever looking for them arrows. You fire, you fire it against a wall <laughs> or a hay bale or yeah. some yeah. wood or something, or at least an open. Feel where you can find the bloody things. Yeah, you don't yeah. fire them into the woods. Yeah, wasting arrow. How, how easy because they missed them pro- all, isn't they? Ar- how easy to make a proper arrow? You're just wasting a load of them, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, yeah, true that. And they, and they all fail except for Marion. Yes. Who hits the sack? Yeah. <laughs> make your own jokes. <laughs> yeah. And then Robin, who, who hits the the rope, he's really holding this. He does one better, doesn't he? Of course he does. One better because he's Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You need to bear that in mind later on, I think. He yeah. can shoot the string off a bag from 100 paces. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about this in the next few scenes to come. <laughs> Just call back to that. We'll bear that in mind. And what's interesting, what's interesting in this scene as well is um, this is a recurring thing where Will Scarlet is challenging Robin mm. on his uh, tactics. So he's saying, why don't we just kill Gisborne? Why don't we go and kill him? And uh, Robin's saying, well, he's, he's good for us. Because he's stupid. He's not yeah, light. He's, stu- he's not light. Mm. The peasants uh, are coming onto our side because he's so... Yeah. Such a dubious position, I think. Yeah. It's a chaotic position. But it's a dubious position because what he's suggesting there, that implication is that uh, if you kill Gisborne, a Norman overlord may come along who is liked. Yeah, and yeah. if they're liked, because they're, maybe they're kind. So essentially, it's, it's Robin Hood's fault. Peasants are suffering. All he needs to do is kill Gisborne, yeah. and yeah. the world might change for the better. Dubious because position. Because in the previous episode, where they have him on a ducking stool or something, Gisborne, mm. or they're ducking him into a yeah, river they capture him a few times. Yeah, don't, they? Think, don't, kill don't kill him. him. Yeah, yeah, kill yeah. everyone else, but not him. Yeah. yeah, but they're giving a reason here, aren't they? Because it, right, it's, yeah. it's it's his tactic, isn't it? To keep, he's a useful fool because. The peasants are yeah. t- a bit like he wants to wants Robin Hood wants to create suffering and mayhem so that he can create some kind of socialist utopia from the ashes of it <laughs> by keeping Gisborne burning villages. <laughs> Sorry, all your villages are burned, but in the long run, it'll be good for everyone. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it stacks up. <laughs> so they um, they find um, they find the peddler hiding, don't they? In Seawood, Seawood, and he's um, trying to shake. Not a peddler, is a thief. He's a, he's a, he's a, a, a peddler, doesn't he? Level 
15 in August. <laughs> 15. We're one out. 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll get to, we don't want to spoil it for anybody. <laughs> well, it's full of spoilers. It? Well, it survives. It's commentary. It? What happens to the guy? Actually, he actually uh, lives, doesn't he? He, he does. doesn't actually comment. It doesn't show him at the end, but he actually survives because he rescues him, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah we'll yeah, get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that. And um, just, just, just ahead of uh, just ahead of that um, they get attacked mm. Mm. they get attacked by Templars and run Templars. like headless chickens in a they circle do. don't they, they yeah. do. you know instead of like they should have had that planned out shouldn't they like if we get yeah. some knights riding into our camp <laughs> we each go in different directions yeah. as you do and run like yeah. the clappers in one direction not in circles there's trees everywhere running into the trees they're on horses they're running around there's one opening in the Cherwood Forest yeah and these are all deadly marksmen aren't they at least one of them is one of them is you could take them off the horses with the longbow just (laughs) pick them off couldn't you yeah that's true I think we should mention as well there's an issue I think in uh, in Robin and Sherwood about noisy horses right Mm. whenever a noise whenever a horse appears in a scene. If it's walking, if it's running, <laughs> or anything, it's going to make a noise. Have <laughs> 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 you ever been on a horse? They don't yeah. make much of a noise, no, do they? they, no. they just move. It's quiet, aren't they? It's fed up. <laughs> right, round all bloody day with someone on the And back. I think if you watch the horses closely, then. then the they're horses on film are not making that noise. No. They're whinnying, but they're not just, whinnying. Just it's like in. a weird overdubbing, like a foreign language film for horses. To let you know these horses. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a horse watching that, you'd think, they're not English horses, they're foreign, they've overdubbed it. They do overdub it. They overdub it because <laughs> when they go into villages as well, the chickens all sound mad. Yeah. 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 I think that opening scene, when I, when I watched it, the opening scene where uh, he's in the forest, the, the bird song is incredibly like loud. There's a lot of yeah, bird yeah, song. Yeah. The sound, they go a bit crazy with the sound effects. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily bad. Not well, necessarily that's intentional, bad thing. that because they wanted the forest to be part of the actual. Yeah, yeah. Thing. It's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing all the time, but you're right. There is a lot. There's a lot of sound effects. Every time, every mm. you watch it, every time a horse walks yeah. on, it's, awesome. it's always going to go. It's the one sound bite they pay for. Yeah. <laughs> I think what it does quite well though that scene where they're attacked. I, I take the point that it, there's a bit of it's slightly comical, as you say, they run around, they're running around in circles, it just said they're just running into the trees. But it does give you a feeling of what it must be like to be charged by men with armour on horseback mm. when you've not really got the height they've got on them and their speed, mm. the advantage that you've got on a horse. That They do a quite a good sure, job of bringing, horses, bringing that across yeah. where they're kind of towering above them in metal on a big horse yeah. and you're on the ground with a quarter staff and you think oh, you really haven't got a chance have you if one of these guys comes at you no. you know and it, it does does portray that quite well and i think back in the day that's what we liked about it that it does well it's not it does kind of show sometimes how combat would have played out because the combat's not fancy schmancy combat that you sometimes see in modern things where everyone's whizzing around like a kung fu fighter it's kind of yeah. quite blunt and brutal yeah and being charged by men on horseback you, you get yeah. that feeling of, yeah, yeah. They, they trip up you know they're running away from the horse and they'll trip up and then suddenly the horse is on top of them yeah, yeah. and it does feel whilst i take the point running around in circles not particularly realistic 
But in another sense, it is realistic. Mm. It gives you a sense of how terrifying that must have been, you know. So um, James cops it, doesn't he? And they capture much. They do. And yeah. he has a pained expression on his face. Or is that just an expression he has? I don't know. <laughs> He's permanently constipated. <laughs> That's really what's wrong with him. <laughs> and then it cuts to, we, we, we get to meet them without the helmets on. Because, mm. of course, we only see, we get a, a, te- we get a post-box view, don't we? We get a temporary yes. eye view. Yeah. <laughs> breathing. Asthmatic breathing. Right. <laughs> the big eye of the Darth Vader's about yeah. it, isn't they? Yeah. yeah. But they take yeah. the helmets off. And what's going on with his hair? This spiky punk hair. <laughs> yeah, he has. He's got, yeah, he's got, he's got a punk haircut, hasn't he, for the 12th century? Yeah. I think it's just static electricity from the helmet, though. <laughs> Those huge bucket helmets, aren't they? I mean, if ever, if ever, again, if when you kind of a role-playing game you, you look at those helmets and think I'm not wearing a helmet like that you know yeah. my, my fighter might have a closed helm but it isn't one it's like, not that. like that it's, it's like, like a dustbin like, isn't it a dustbin yeah <laughs> dusty bin from 321 I think 321 had stopped then so maybe they, they re, <laughs> re-sprayed the dusty bins and said stick these on your head fellas and uh, <laughs> so isn't it and there's also the guy from Acorn Antiques isn't there there is yeah. Duncan is it Duncan Preston Duncan Preston yeah, yeah. Antiques, yeah. yeah. impressive yeah. scar Impressive scat, and then um, they have a they have a funeral pyre, don't they, for their yeah, fallen yeah. comrade? Yeah. And uh, you, you, we get to meet um, the sheriff in Ogden and uh, Guy of Gisborne. Yeah, uh, come and Gisborne comes along, and um, they start to talk. Now, now you've already heard, haven't you? Because Friar Tuck's already said, "Oh, I can tell you some stories about them." Templars. The Templars. The camp. The camp. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you. Ooh. Oh, the stories <laughs> I can oh. tell you. You know. And we already know. Like a cast off from how you're being served, isn't he? <laughs> at the time. And, and but also, uh, the sheriff kind of underlines that, doesn't he? Because he can, like, like you say, the Templars in this, they're not a mystical um, paladins, are they? They're like hard-nosed mercenaries, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. Who come yes. from the Holy Land. And, but, why Gisborne and the sheriff would have known who they were anyway, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Because apparently later on, two thousand of them were in Lincoln or something. Yeah, they're always in Lincoln. For a festival, everyone's in Lincoln. Aren't they? <laughs> really? I can't understand as well. Is they coming back from the Holy Land to Lincoln via Nottingham? <laughs> is that is that is that a route that you would take? I'm not sure it is. I always think well, that lost, everyone's everyone's going to Lincoln or from Lincoln. I mean, it's hell of a long way from Nottingham to Lincoln to start with, isn't it? Yeah. But you know. They're always popping over to Lincoln, aren't they? To the yeah. shops. Oh, come on, to Lincoln. Lincoln or Kirklees, which is even third. Kirklees, come on, mate. Yeah. I never quite understood it. Oh, we're on our way back from the Holy Land. We got lost. So, so th- it's at this point, isn't it? It's at this point where the, the sheriff says, well, one of the best lines in it, I think, is he asks Gisburn, do you see yourself as... This country is like a sponge. Yeah. 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 It's been taking uh, people... Do you, do you see yourself as a Norman or as an Englishman? And Gisborne says, as a Norman. I thought you'd say that. Well, that's yeah. the first time you see the sheriff being human, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yes, that's true. He's a, a pantomime villain, isn't he? Yeah. That's the first, probably the first and only time in the entire series yeah, he actually comes out of that line. I wonder if it was meant for somebody else. I think there's, <laughs> I, I do think there's times, you're right, that by the sound of episode four, isn't it? And suddenly you see a slightly different side to him. What I see is he's a villain because he's a kind of cruel, 
ruler, isn't he? Kind of, he's a kind of bullying, nasty yeah. fellow in one sense. But I think throughout the series, you do see sides to him where you think, when he's surrounded by others of his kind, like King John, who's a bit of a nasty. Phil Davis plays King John in some episodes, yeah. quite nasty. I think you do see how he's in a world of people like that. And in some senses, he's probably not the worst person no. in the normal yeah. world. He's just out for himself, but not, even, himself not in a nasty wants, sense, is he? He's, yeah. he's out for himself and he just wants people to do as they're told. Yeah. You know, he won't have to just do as they're told and leave me alone. And he, yeah. He's under yeah. pressure, isn't he? He's under like performance indicators from King John <laughs> to collect taxes and do this and yeah. do that. So he, he, he's, not only he's not a sympathetic character, that's going a bit too far. But he, he is portrayed sometimes as... Human and mm. and yeah, I don't know on his are you on you're not on his side, but sometimes you think yeah, he's so under a bit of pressure there, you know. <laughs> and, and I think in this stage he is kind of deferent to them, isn't he? Because he realizes that they're they're under a higher mm. command than yeah. him, yeah. so he kind of leaves them to it. The king of kings. Yeah, yes. and he he he, uh, he, he gets embarrassed. Uh, Gisborne says, "You know, the half wit when he sees mm. uh, much of the Miller's son." Yeah. He's, he kind of uh, gets annoyed with him, doesn't he? Yes, he's embarrassed. He's yeah. embarrassed in front yeah. of them. And, and that, that's the thing that makes him human, that he's he's a villain driven by things like that, by embarrassment and social standing and doesn't want to appear like a fool and it puts him in an ill temper. So he's, he's kind of happy to get people killed just so he doesn't look stupid in front of his peers. That's right, yeah. you know. It's got a kind of very good. It's a very good portrayal, really, and he, he does steal. The sh when I was watching it, as soon as he appears, I thought, "Oh, good, here we yeah. are, yeah. here we are." The sheriff or not, yeah. he steals the show. He steals every <laughs> scene he's in, doesn't he? Really? Well, what is it, Alan Rickman? I think he based his character on it, didn't he? Right. Alan Rickman in the yeah, Robin, yeah. Robin, Robin yeah. Prince of Thieves, whatever yeah, it was. But, yeah. but, uh, is it Nick Nicholas Grace? Is it the actor? Yeah, Grace? yeah, it's very, very good. really, really good. So then, um, we, we don't really know. Why the temp at this stage? Why the Templars are after Robin? Mm. Do we? we? No, you know. So at that point, there's this trial by combat, isn't there? This is a big scene. There. Yeah, they capture Rob. Robin tries to rescue Much, doesn't he? But gets yeah. caught. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then he's he's put to trial by combat, isn't he? Yeah. Because they have a funeral pyre, don't they? Yeah, yeah. For one who died. Yeah. Who got knocked off his horse mm. by? Yeah. Little John's quarterstaff. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it's like critical it there, I think. <laughs> Which quite because <laughs> they clear the ashes very quickly after that, don't they? And they have a fight on the ash oh, pile. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why? Which is why Robin has a black tooth, silly face later on, doesn't it? Yeah. When he gets back to the woods. Yeah. Is that yeah. spoiling the scene? Gets back to the woods with a. I thought he was going to sneak back in undercover at night yeah. later, but he wasn't. He just got a black face because of the, the ashes. Soot, yeah. Which the was a bit silly. Floor, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, bet, I bet they tried that. I tell you what, I'll put some uh, ash on my face. <laughs> yeah, 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 if you want to do that, Michael, you do, you that, do that. Yeah, that's Michael, fine. Yeah. Good idea. Don't let it upset your hair. <laughs> Don't just spoil your hair. Yeah. yeah. So they have this battle, don't they? Um, <laughs> Acorn Antiques Man. And, uh, yeah, what's he, what's he called? Heinrich von Schnaffelschnader or something. It's like something out of a Warhammer war game, isn't he? Yeah. Like, uh, Heinrich von Schnaffelschnader. He has one line, I think, doesn't he? In a German accent, that's it. <laughs> and they have his trial, and it's a shield and morning star. Mm. Yeah, like a flail, isn't it? So, and a, a flail. And just, it's just there to make a lot of noise, isn't yeah. it? Clump, clump. Yeah. But, but they look nasty, them, though, do you not know think? You don't like one of them hitting your elbow, would you? 
Cause look, <laughs> oh, anyway. It's not again going back to the other fight. They're very. It was a very clumsy, but authentic looking. Yes, thing. That, I, I was just going to say that, and that's what is interesting about it. Because at the time, they don't want to get hit with one of them. No, things. it's a cl- it's it a clumsy and slightly brutal fight. It's not. It's not choreographed, is it? No. no. I mean, it will have been choreographed, but it doesn't look choreographed. No. I think it, if you saw that in a modern thing now with two people fighting with shields and morning stars there'd be all sorts of things wouldn't there yeah acrobatics yeah. and a bit of acrobatics cameras jipping all over it's the place not, yeah it's like this big you know inco- aircar antiques German man really going at a slightly smaller Robin Hood and swinging at him and knocking him over and the way when it hits the shield it kind of knocks him to the floor mm, yeah. and it did it did you know whether whether it's it's like all these things on in film whether it's authentic as in, would it have really been like that or not? It looked authentic. And mm. I think that's why we used to like it, because you could watch the fights and go, oh, look, yeah, they're, they're, using, they're using Morningstar flails. Oh, yeah, this is what it is. Yeah, well, I see how that Probably works. the only fight we ever saw with Morningstar. Is, is it possibly <laughs> the, the only fight in ever. TV history with Morningstar flails? Sure. Yeah, couldn't it, couldn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. But I think that was what it felt it, when you watched it. Because even the sword fight, when he gets captured, he has a sword fight with the, right. the French kind of leader of the yeah, Templars, yeah. doesn't it? And that is quite a kind of, I don't know, ballsy fight where they're kind of falling over and really mm. going at each other. Yeah, that's right. No, they, 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 are good, they are good fights. Yeah. So uh, Robin runs away. Yes. Uh, and uh, assures much he'll be back. Although if he wasn't, we wouldn't have been that bothered. We wouldn't have been bothered. No, no. It's his brother, uh, isn't it? His <laughs> brother or something. He sets the time though, doesn't he? he sets the, the the guy with the haircut turns around yes. and says, "We're going to hang him soon, so you better hurry up back." Because, but in French, <laughs> maybe that's what the real gripe is between him and Robin. Who's got the best haircut? <laughs> you know, he, he, Robin's gone for the prog rock long locks. He's and he's gone nervous. for the more punky. Maybe it's a punk prog rock thing, you yeah. know, really. That's what's really going on. Has he been in anything before, that guy? Was he, is he, he is French, is he, isn't he? Yeah. I think he's quite a well-known French I'd seen his first then. Yeah. I, think he's, I think he's quite well-known in France. Um, again, that was one of the like, little ticks in the box. I think that using a proper French actor to yeah, play yeah, a Frenchman. Yeah. That's was, right. You know, admittedly, the German is the man from Econ Antique. He's probably <laughs> born in Barnsley. But the, the main French guy is French. You know? yeah. Yeah. Or Preston, because he's called Duncan Preston. Do you think yeah, he makes that look? I don't know. I don't know. It's not always like that, does it? Uh, <laughs> you, you can't say anything about the hair, because you used to have your hair like Michael Parade in the 80s, around this time. Didn't you? A bit of, uh, no, it's a bit later, that. Was 84, it? it was short. It's hard. I had it cut when I left school in the hope of getting a job. That soon. <laughs> but realising it, <laughs> it would take more than that. It would take more than a haircut. So I grew it again because yeah. no, there weren't any jobs in Bolton in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so we were ending all in college. Yeah, it, it, has, it has to be said before we move on to the next uh, scene. We used to admire Michael Pratt quite a bit, didn't we? we mean, oh, yeah, he's, he's quite cool. Because he's, 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 a, he's a good-looking fellow, isn't he? You know, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. He's the ideal hero, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, he is. He, he's he, kind of the one you would model your character on. Yeah, he does, he does look the part, doesn't he, really? Yeah. If you kind of... This, and this is one of the strengths of the series in some ways. If you had to imagine Robin Hood, he's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's that's what you would imagine mm. him to look like, yeah. you know? You would know, wouldn't you? Because he's only he's he's like a proper ranger, isn't he? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's not like a daft fellow in a with a feather in his hat and green tights on, is he? He's yeah. not kind of like that Robin Hood. He's he's more yeah. He's just that 
You just put oh, the, the kind of loops. The costumes in. still stand the test of time, though, don't they? I, I seem to remember that you you asked your sister to make us hoods. We had hoods. Yeah, didn't we, we did. When we went larping, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it weren't called larp back then. It was called larping. <laughs> was it? Then. Up in Newton the Willows. Yeah, we had. It's yeah. gone messing about. Walking around. Walking around. With so much time on our hands because <laughs> we didn't have jobs. <laughs> Despite the haircuts. <laughs> so, um, Seaward gets uh, captured in Nottingham, doesn't he? Mm. And this is where we find out why they're after him because he's stolen the uh, pendant from yes. from uh, the Knights Temple. And they, they think it's Robin mm. and his merry men that have stolen it. So, um, at that point, the Sheriff of Nottingham takes the pendant for himself and saying he, uh, he sleeps with it for some reason. He, he has the option of putting it in a box. What do you all think? Is that the scene where he has Seward in front of him? Yeah, yeah. And you suddenly have the, the realisation. He kind of gets you a bit when he asks him, how did you lose that mm, eye? Yeah, and yeah. suddenly you kind of all, you feel very sorry for Seward. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly you don't care about it. You think, oh, he's going to lose his other eye. Well, you know what's coming, yeah. That's true, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, so he says, uh, take out his other eye, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> then he says, you can't. Yeah, that's who would say, you can't do that. Yeah. What, what a ridiculous thing to say in that day. <laughs> Clearly he can. <laughs> oh, yeah. said, Please don't do that. Yeah, no, you you can't. better get on your knees and say, look, I'll don't do, do that. anything. Yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and around the same time, conveniently, Robin makes the same thing, doesn't he? He realises mm. that, that that must be the way they, he comes to the same conclusion. So he thinks, right, we've got to get the pendant back. Yes. And luckily, he's not being kept in uh, Nottingham, not is he? He's not, no, he's been kept at Marion's old house or something. Yeah, Lee- Leaford Grange. That's right, yeah. Is it near Lincoln? <laughs> Nobody knows. One of the two. Nobody they can't knows. get into into Showcastle, it would be impossible. But fortunately... He's quite doing the rounds, isn't he? Collecting his tickets. Right. He's, he's, he's touring the touring so the just happens to be in Marion's yeah, yeah. yeah, he refers to that at the beginning, doesn't he? When he's on, that's when he meets the Templars because he's doing this grand tour, annual tour of the place. Yeah. And the, and there always has to be a reason to give Marion something to do, isn't there? And this yeah. is a good reason, isn't it? Because this is her family yeah. home that she she's yeah. left, and so she knows it well, and she mm. knows how to get into it. Fortunately for him. Yeah, so. there's a bit of um, when they break in. There's a bit of like pantomime, isn't there? Oh, Nazir, Nazir, right? Yeah, so Nazir, uh, who's who's our favourite character, it has yeah. to be said, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah. We all want him to play Nazir. Yeah. The ruthless assassin. Yeah, has to try and indicate to Friar Tuck by the means of mine that as they disguised as guards, which they've just killed brutally with one shot, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. Because it always goes over in one yeah. blow. That armour never works. Norman, <laughs> they need to have a word with the man supplying the armour to the sheriff's Norman soldiers. One throw dagger. One, one blade. You know. <laughs> a blade, actually a blade dragged across it. The very thing chainmail protects you against. A blade dragged across it rather than punched into yeah. it. Still die. What's that? How many armour points of chainmail? Is it five? Yeah. A thrown dagger, 1d4, plus yeah. one, is it? Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a critical, isn't it? It's got to be critical to him, but isn't it straight in the middle of his chest? That's not a critical, is it? It's like in the neck's a critical. Yeah. <laughs> we had these arguments. These are the arguments we had all the time. He just throws it. 
Yeah. No. Well, he's got an Azir. Easy the weak point. Everyone wanted to play an Azir, which just led to endless, endless arguments about two-weapon fighting in RuneQuest. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've ever even resolved it. No. I've, I've got right, I've got two scimitars, one in each hand. Can I attack twice? Um, that doesn't seem right. Oh, well, can I can I parry twice? No. Well, why is the, what's the point of having two weapons then? There must be some advantage, but you could never quite simulate no, it in the out. game. Never work it out, could you? So having dispatched the guards at Leaford Grange, they have this routine, don't they, where Nizia, by the power of mime, is yes. telling the fight up to lift his frock tussock, up, cassock, his, cassock, yeah, his tussocks, <laughs> hide his tussocks, because <laughs> it's giving him away. And Gisborne comes out and they have a look, and you just see these like very pale legs, don't you, going yeah. across. Yeah, it's, still, it's, he's, by, it's hidden by a shield, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, they have two shields in the direction of Gisborne, don't they? Still completely walk. implausible. Yeah, despite it's him lifting his, his cassock or his tussock, he's still <laughs> totally implausible. And it makes you realise if, if Specsavers had existed and Gisborne had glasses, they'd have been done for. <laughs> he obviously Gisborne obviously has eyesight issues. That's right. It's low light as well. It's going dusk, isn't it? Well, it's filtered to look like dusk. <laughs> So they, they, they recover the uh, the pendant, don't they? They get it, they get it back, mm. and they start to take it to back to the Templars. Yeah, that's a good scene though. Where he's recovering the the yeah the uh, pendant. Where he's opening the keys on the box, mm. isn't it? Yeah, and in the snow, the sheriff's gonna get up. And he's trying in one, and it keeps flashing back to the sheriff. You in see bed. him get out of bed. Don't you do. You get his legs sticking out. Yeah. <laughs> he goes there with his keys just no suddenly yeah. knife's at his throat isn't it yeah. Seward's throat and then suddenly Gizmo gets dragged back by uh, yeah. Robin Hood yeah. <laughs> then, then you don't see Seward again I don't think do you no you no. assume he got away but you're not sure right? in fact yeah. why did they free him why did they free Seward is it because he's a th- he's a professional thief, isn't he? Yeah, he's not a peddler, is he? Yeah, he tried to pick the lock, doesn't yeah. he? But he's a level 15 thief so they just wanted his thing but he failed his role didn't he yeah He's clearly not level 15 then, isn't he? <laughs> oh, did he fail his role or were they always intending him to disturb him? Yeah, for yeah that that's true. Yeah. 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 You can see this. Like a decoy. Decoy, yeah. Yes. There's a lot of that goes on in uh, Robin and Show, isn't <laughs> it? A lot of decoy. There's a lot of decoys. And there's a lot of questions about why don't you just wake the sheriff up with a knife to his throat and say, give it here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tie him up. Yeah. And why on earth are you sleeping with it? And why are you sleeping with it, yeah? <laughs> What's going on? You've got a big box there. Yeah, the box is weird. <laughs> Sleep with the box. Yeah. 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 When, does, when does a treasure item of treasure, you stop sleeping with it, you know? Weird, <laughs> weird going on. I think the thing with that treasure, though, as well, what's interesting about it is there's, there's often in Robin Sherwood a level of kind of mysticism, isn't there, about stuff? And there's often magic in it. So there's often sorcerers and stuff. And there's no mm. magic in this episode. But even without magic, that medallion thing is given a sort of mystical quality An aura isn't it? To it yeah. so in this one there's mm-hmm. this very low level mysticism there's no Hearn the Hunter you know the old fellow with the antlers on his head doesn't appear out of the mist and there's no magic but even that that pendant has a sort of mystical quality doesn't it, does, it? It's, yeah. a, there's, it's a very you know, kind of heavily laden with that Robin Sherwood about yeah, mysticism yeah. Uh, well, it like makes that. a big deal, doesn't it? But you know, they travel through the Holy Land and mm. uh, fought against all these people, but managed to get it stolen by Petty. Oh, nice. Yeah, one yeah. and Petty. And so yeah. it's kind of it, it, uh, the sheriff takes great pleasure in it, but he can see yeah. that it has got some significance, hasn't it? But it is that thing as well, where in Robin Sherwood, 
Christianity is is never portrayed well, is it? So you've got like mystical stuff and pagan stuff going on, but Christianity is never portrayed particularly well in Robin Sherwood. No. It's out like the religion of the oppressors, yeah, isn't right. it? You know, because you've got a uh, that from Friar Talk. Friar Talk, but Friar Talk's almost like kind of def- defected and become some kind of I don't know what he's become, some kind of. I don't know, half pagan, half Christian monk, hasn't That's it? right. He's yeah. kind of bought into Robin's. Half, half pantomime, half horse. Half pantomime, yes. well, the, the church is there to be kicked, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like the, the, whole the sheriff's, sheriff's brother, brother, John, brother, his brother. Hugo, yeah. Hugo, Hugo, yeah. He's an abbot, isn't he? And he's yeah. a nasty piece of work. So the church is very, you know, very kind of negative, isn't it? And the, yeah. the paganism is, you know, it's, it's an Good. interesting like split in it, isn't it? So we go back to the uh, Templars' camp. And they're about to hang much, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. Uh, does death hurt? <laughs> <laughs> Stupid face, he says. <laughs> and you know that this is a tense bit. Because <laughs> not only are the chickens going mad, and the horses, mm. you get that thing with the kettle drums, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Mm. Boom! <laughs> like yeah, no, yeah. Boom! <laughs> it's, it's the Kalanad slime track, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. As good as it is, and it makes a great album, it's a little bit misplaced at times, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think right. they, they lack a bit of tense, so maybe they've picked out bits that of yeah, the end. Yeah. That was the last <laughs> drum of a song, so they yeah. shove that in. Shove that in. Yeah. Can't have like a, a dance. Bit, a bit of tension, yeah. Yeah. Clan up, they don't do tension now. <laughs> they, do, they do like uh, fairy folk villages and misty forests, but. That's right. Tension no, combat I, scene. No. I can't yeah. remember how uh, does Robin. Rescue him, eh? He gives him the. Um, he comes in the with the medallion. He comes in with the medallion. Yeah. Comes yeah. with the medallion, and then the, the knights double cross him because they attack him afterwards, don't they? He takes the pendant, the pendant, the medallion. Much go. And he says, Can I have my sword back? Because yeah. he took his sword, doesn't oh, he? Yeah, yeah. And, he uh, and then they attack him. No, he stole it or something, so I'll keep it. So they let him go. Yeah. But obviously, Robin's a bit annoyed because his sword's been kept. And they're walking away and you could see the Templars getting ready with their helmets. <laughs> Cue the breathing. Yeah. And they start to chase them. And it's an ambush. It's an ambush, yeah. Yeah, they get the road, so knock them off the horses, don't One they? One of the most silly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a trained knight. Yeah. <laughs> piece of slacks. Not exactly wire across hey, it. Gorilla water. Rotus, it's that, not the great know. escape, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Shot their heads off Cheese so they all suddenly end up on the floor, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Bumbling around, he's like, Emily, <laughs> you think they train falling off an arse and getting up quickly? Yeah, what happened? <laughs> Templar school. Right, what, today we're going to look at what happens if you fall off your horse. Yeah. Uh, are you dead? Are you guys? Is that the end of the game over? Or can you actually get up with your sword and swing your sword around? And, We've always had this sense like the longbow's most deadliest weapon in medieval. <laughs> we can punch through male armour. Why, why did they bother with any of that? Why did they just say, OK, you hang much? Yeah. But you're obviously going to Lincoln after this and you'll yeah. be dead before you get there because we're going to hunt you the whole way through Lincoln, pepper you with arrows. Yeah. So you're never going to get there. Yeah. yeah. Get them. They could have yeah, just gone from the forest and rained arrows on them. Yeah. 100 yards, you can cut a string on a bag. Exactly. I think that's the, <laughs> that's the fatal mistake made in the plot, isn't it? He, he can do that with the rope. <laughs> But what he can't do is sit just outside a village and pick a man-sized object off. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get, like you say, get through that slot in you. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Straight in the yeah. eye. Just get an, yeah, get an arrow yeah. in him. 
I don't have it. You're not having that. No. Yeah, he's only good, he's good at rolling. They run in, didn't they? And put swords to the next, and then they cut the same note. Yeah, and then they take the pendant and uh, melt it down, don't they? The medallion. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're seen riding off on a horse, aren't they? They're, With Noah. Yeah, Econ Antiques, Noah. man. <laughs> so Heinrich Econ Antiques <laughs> and the French punk are seen. Which is a symbol of the. Plastic, plastic Bertrand. <laughs> two on a horse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. On the medallion. The nights in poverty. You no, know, we, we love we love this program, but anyone who's uh, who's not seen it is probably it's thinking going to it put them up. Absolutely yeah. crap. <laughs> we didn't want this to be a. Uh, no, but it, it's like no. <laughs> We haven't done. We've been. We've given. No, it. no, we can't. No, no. No, it is. It is brilliant, and actually, this still it still stands up to watching. I think it yeah. still stands up. It's okay. It's pretty good, you know. And, and if it was on today. You know, it would it would be you know it stands up to scrutiny. I think we loved it, we did love it because it influenced our game such a lot. Yes, but everything we've said, no, we used to say at the time we used yeah. to criticise the uh, the battles in it. Yeah, um, but I think I think that's testament to how good it is actually because yeah. in a way, if you watch something like that that's just rubbish, you you a you won't watch it. You'll just give up on it, and b you won't criticise whether you could hit some with a longbow from that range, or whether uh, a flail would really work like that, because you wouldn't, yeah. you kind, you wouldn't be engaging, would it? As a thing, it was, in, it, it was an engaging watch, and that led you to those arguments of thinking, well, would you do it that way? Would you do it this way? You know, and as you say, it informed our role playing because each episode was like a role playing game. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the crucial things about it. Was it was like a scenario. It was it? like a scenario, and it, they were a band of adventurers. And they were faced with a problem. And when you watched it, you'd unpick it as if you were the player character. So mm. that, what you've just said, yeah. of thinking, mm, the way I'd do it is I'd try and hit one with a longbow from the village, from outside mm. the village. That was the strength of it. That's yeah. why I think we loved it. And that's why the people of our generation loved it who liked role-playing. Because it did feel like uh, a role-playing game. The, the Merry Men were all like role-playing characters. Yeah. They? they were yeah. like characters you would play that's if you right. were playing a role-playing yeah. game. You with know, the, flaw, the flaws that then some of the cameo roles like I always like Talon Adele but I also, I also like the Seaward character in this yeah yeah. I thought yeah. she was great I would have picked that character to play in there yeah, they were, yeah. They were, they were, the characters were very well drawn it was very well written the dialogue was good everything about it was kind of convincing so despite being able to poke fun at it it was very convincing and it felt like yeah. a role playing yeah. game you could, you could I think you could probably take any episode of Robin Sherwood and turn it into a one-shot role-playing scenario yeah. very, very easily, and it would be very enjoyable. You yeah. know, This gets stolen, you get blamed for it, you've got to go and steal it off the sheriff because he's got it now, give it back, rescue an NPC, you get double-crossed by the knights at the end. That, that's the makings of a great scenario, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Really? Well, that's why it was quite difficult to pick an episode, because yeah. they're all very good. Aren't yeah. they? I don't think there's a bad episode. Uh, in the first two seasons, seasons of this show, mm, maybe yeah. the third, I don't really know it that well, with yeah. uh, Jason. Jason Connery. Yeah. But we don't know that one. It goes off the boil then, right? Yeah, we were getting older though. Yeah, I don't think, sure. and it, I think we touched on this at the beginning. Tree sounds. I think my favourite scenes in the, are the ones where the outlaws are mucking around. Yeah. In yeah, the forest. Yeah. yeah because yeah. it's sunshine. I mean, it's great if you suffer from seasonally adjusted depression. <laughs> Just just put that on. You don't need YouTube with bird songs. Just put Robin and Sherwood on with it and watch the kind of opening scenes with them up around <laughs> in the sunshine in the forest. Yeah. Or there's one where they're playing quarterstaffs on yeah, a, on a right, yeah. bridge. 
Yeah. Well, do, you not, do, do, do you not think uh, yeah, that, that takes you back to your childhood? Because, you know, even we live in Bolton, there was like bits of uh, greenery around, wasn't there? Mm. Where we used to go and play. Yeah. You know, yeah in the yeah. 70s, you'd go and play by a stream. There might be an old... Uh, Shopping trolley in it and a few <laughs> copies of Razzle, but it was that was our like Sherwood Forest's kids. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and over the summer holidays you'd be uh, that, you'd yeah. be playing playing that, and that's what I think Robin Sherwood plays on that kind of particularly English, yeah, countryside of like yeah, it, it is English, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, because it, also because it was filmed um, on film stock rather than video mm. has that kind of soft focus yeah. which is how I remember that's how I remember um, that's how yeah. nostalgic <laughs> for it because that's how I remember playing in yeah in, in those kind of environments when I was a kid yeah yeah the soft focus element it's almost like a memory of your own being played out in front of you almost yeah. isn't it yeah. by actors that is a vague memory of something that's that right, yeah. you played as a kid yeah, in the forest yeah. Mess, <laughs> yeah. yeah messing about with like a rope building a rope swing or something the kind of thing that yeah, kids do. did and that's what in some ways that's why what they're doing the same mm. as there are scenes where they're goofing around in Sherwood Forest you know which are, again are kind of well drawn scenes where it's not all fighting and serious they're just mucking about yeah. aren't they like yeah people perhaps would <laughs> even if you're yeah. an outlaw yeah. you are going to have a laugh every now and again i think it, it did it touched on that element of uh, escapism that was big in the 80s you know travelers and uh, not travelers as we know them now those used to go around in hippie vans and go to festivals and things like that i think there's an element of that god i want to do that i don't yeah. want a job yeah he wants a job in 1984 <laughs> just yeah. get in a van and muck around in the forest <laughs> yeah. no one is like Bunyan and going across Ireland in a caravan and trying to find Donovan or yeah, there's like escapism in there yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why we watched it yeah I, I, well I watched it anyway wasn't yeah. just wasn't just the RPG element yeah. just like getting away from life yeah and what do we think about this episode overall compared with the others? So if you if you had to choose another one um, for us to watch, which one would you go for? What would you go for, by then? I would go for um, The Children of Israel, Yeah, which is a good one, about um, kind of Jewish family who get persecuted by the sheriff. and he, he has a pogrom in Nottingham against them because he owes the Jewish guy money. You know, so it's a bit of a cliched kind of view of a kind of Shylock mm. character who's lent the sheriff money, and the sheriff doesn't either can't or doesn't want to pay it back. Um, so he sort of stirs up racial hatred for the Jews. But it's a good one because, again, it a bit like the Templar one. It talks about something historically accurate that you know Jewish people that. being persecuted in the Middle Ages. That's yeah. what happened, uh, and also it's got um, there's a bit of it where Will Scarlet goes rogue he gets fed up of being under Robin's command and he becomes a proper outlaw and that's quite an interesting thing because that relationship between Robin Sherwood and Will Scarlet is one of the most probably the most interesting relationship in it in some ways um, and it's also got a bit of magic in it as well develops Gisborne a bit doesn't it oh, develops Gisborne because he, he, he fancies the, the daughter of the Jewish yeah, fella Rebecca and, yeah that's right and he, he kind of tips them off that oh they're, they're going to come for you you know and that and again it develops him as a character he becomes where, more human doesn't he he does that, yeah, yeah even though he's slightly slanted a bit into it, so. he's, like a, he's like a bit of a pillock isn't he yeah. Gisborne he's a bit stupid yeah. a bit brutish but at the same time you know he um, 
again, he's, he's portrayed in a slightly more sympathetic way, which makes it more interesting. Yeah. You know, so I, I like that episode. What about you, Eddie? Uh, I would have said The Witch of Elsdon, but I think just pips it as uh, Alan Adale. Yeah. I don't know something about that one. It's a bit soft. It's a soft episode. Yeah. But it's got that. So it's like done by early CGI bees. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it's got. I just the storyline's so good. Is he's going to Alan Adale traipsing through the forest and they yeah. kind of hold him up as they do outlaws. And where are you going? Oh, I'm going to kill the sheriff. And from that moment, you kind of hey, what's what's this mm. about? You kind of and it's his kind of quest. And it's a scenario in itself, you know. Mm. The NPC rides in, tells him what he's going to do, which is really he's asking for the help, and they're going to do they find to rescue the maiden. So I just think it's a perfect scenario, yeah. as written in that show. Mm. One of my favourites is the two-parter with the Hounds of Lucifer in. Yeah, the, uh, well, they're all good, aren't they? They're all good, really. The sword's a Wayland, yeah. and it's got real lens going. Yeah, which yeah. is after his sword, isn't she? Who gets more attractive as we get older? Don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. If you watch it now, you think, well, he's all right. But at the time, I wasn't sure about it. A bit old for us. In, yeah. fact, <laughs> in fact, it is available on YouTube, um, that, that two-parter. And if you're unsure about uh, Robin Sherwood, that's probably the one, isn't it, that's got all of the elements in, hasn't it? Yes, like, it has, yeah. Devil worship yeah. and stuff. And that, yeah. was a big, that was a big part of it. That's what made it. Um, exciting that it did have magic in it, had sorcery, magic kind of. It didn't have monsters in it, but it had witches and wizards and and it was and it was done very very well. I think it was yeah. done in a very subtle way. Just the right amount. Just the right amount. There was a kind of sinister, that, that Baron is it Baron de Belen? De Belen, yeah. You know, he was a kind of sorcerer who'd come back from the Holy Land and enchanted little John and Nazir right at the beginning, mm. and he was a there's kind of sinister character. But the magic was done in a very subtle way, I think. Yeah. Done kind of horror. I like a bit, a bit hammer horror, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. voodoo and uh-huh. mind control and all <laughs> that sort of stuff going on. So yeah. you know, it's very, very good. So we're going to go and uh, play a game now. It's a bit like the old. We've, we've watched this. So <laughs> what a pity that Herbs, uh, Winnie, Winnie and uh, Swab aren't coming now. That would be. Be great, wouldn't it? Well, I've got a surprise. I'll be biting. Herbs, Winnie, and Swab sound like a, a, a solicitors. So solicitors, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. I wonder what they're doing now. Anyway, answers on a postcard. Thanks a lot. Uh, we'll uh, leave your shed now, Ed. Okay. See you later. Goodbye. I'll just make a note for the future episode. We need to tell you that story of uh, LARPing in Newtonley Willows. Hmm. Rog Coe reminded me that one of the joys of the earlier episodes of the Grog Pod was listening to the stories of fellow gamers from back in the day. So please post your memories on the site of thegrognardfiles.com about Robin of Sherwood or any other programmes that you used to watch to get you in the mood for playing. April the 12th and 13th is the date for Virtual Grog Meet, an online gaming meetup that we host. There's a great array of games available. Legends of the Five Rings, Call of Cthulhu, Pope Cthulhu, Knights Black Agents, Flashing Blades and many others. It's a great way of discovering how online play works and meeting fellow gamers. There's loads of groups that spun out of the last one so please take the opportunity to take part. Check the site for details. It will also mark the official 
launch of the Grogzine, which is still in production, a little delayed, but it's going out to Patreon supporters soon. We do have a Patreon support to cover the costs, fund other projects, encourage us to continue, and we're always extremely flattered and gracious about the tips thrown into the Patreon virtual barre every month. And we've reached another goal. A Nostalgia podcast, a one-off annual podcast extra, where we'll talk about, in more detail, about the games that we're playing at the moment. And we're going to do it after the UK Games Expo in June. We're running games at the event and we're really looking forward to it. Thanks to everyone who's joined us recently. I'll do some personal shout-outs next time. But for now, I just wanted to thank somebody that I missed last time. Joseph Procopio, thanks. He produced a book, The Lost Art of Ray Wilner, The Adventures of Robin Hood. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm going to give him uh, something because I forgot him. So let me roll on this uh, table here. It's a, it's a merp table. Hearn's Arrow. Next time, we'll be focusing on what's gameable about the Robin of Sherwood series. And we look at Fate Accelerated and how it can be used to replicate the Robin Hood experience. Until then, adios amigos. Adios.